Hi, hi, everyone. This is Kim C, and you're listening to the Year of Underrated Stephen King. I'm a university fiction teacher, and this is my one-woman Stephen King podcast, where I plug away at the lesser-explored titles to provide a deeper, closer look at the good stuff everybody missed. Happy Halloween, everybody! Happy Spooky Month! I hope you have all had a lovely October thus far. The weather in my area has just started to get a little chilly. There's some crisp in the air, so I'm thrilled. I know the majority of us have been bundled up for quite a bit of time, but it's just now starting to dip temperature-wise so I can fully enjoy all of the spooky autumnal glory. Everyone, I just finished Christine. I had such an amazing time, everybody. And after I closed the book, I thought to myself, all right, let's just put it in a sentence. When we think of Christine, what are we going to say? And what came out was, that was kind of great. (laughs) I know, it's, I don't know why the kind of is there, it just is. I think it's probably because... Going into this novel, I had really no idea what I was getting into other than the snippets I've had along the way from the 1983 John Carpenter film, which I had never really seen before in its entirety. A scene here, a clip there, all I knew about Christine was that she was an evil car. But that didn't even scratch the surface on what a rich novel this is, guys. I was thoroughly surprised. I was a little concerned at first because it's a slower burn, but not really. I was curious as to how he was going to wrap it all up and put this together. And by the time we started to get to the later 300-ish pages, I was absolutely riveted by what he was doing. The writing was white hot. It was lava rocks, ladies and gentlemen. I was thoroughly surprised as to how cool this story is and how cool it still is. Wow. Kind of great, guys. Kind of great. I had a blast. This was the perfect October book a tremendous Halloween pick, and my friend Bryant Burnett did warn me this one does not pull its punches, and he was correct. There was definitely a few moments where I was a little freaked out. I could feel my heart pound a little bit. I felt a little gaspy. It was thoroughly well done. So now I'm ready to chat with you about all the things. In this episode, we are going to go for it. We are going to discuss the unique elements and strengths of the novel. We will then transition into heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. We're going to talk about the archetypes we have in this story, as well as some of these robust characters who really shine very bright. We will then head into criticisms, questions. I might have a little bit of wishing well. If you guys remember, I mentioned wishing well a long time ago, early days of the podcast. It's the area of the podcast where I wish (laughs) I toss a coin into the magical wishing well that if I had the ability to make changes, wave a magic wand, and change the narrative, 
what would I do? We might have a little bit of that unknown. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about the movie. That was totally fun. I have a lot of thoughts. There's some standout awesomeness, and there's also some, I wish this would have been added in. But overall, lots of cool stuff to discuss. This is gonna be a jam-packed one, guys. I am super excited. Let's learn a little bit about Christine, everybody. This was a 1983 novel, so early 80s king. This novel has approximately 526 pages. I do have a very vintage copy of the American hardcover. It's quite nice. The dust jacket is in good shape. So I always love when I can hunt down an older King novel that's still in lovely shape. So somebody must have been a fan and took very good care of it for my copy. We have approximately 50 chapters in this book divided into three parts. Part one is Dennis slash teenage car songs. Part two around page 181 is Arnie teenage love songs. And then the last part, part three, starts around page 394, Christine teenage death songs. Wow, I really have a lot of good things to say about this, guys. This is for the seemingly slightly silly slash laughable, I hate to even use that phrase, but when you describe Christine, it's a little bit cheeky, right? Oh, it's an evil car, right? It's a little silly. However, what this novel does is really dive into some deeper, darker stuff, some tragic stuff that make this very haunting and a really wonderful story about friendship, loss, and most of all, possession. That is definitely the theme of this novel, possession. We are really gonna talk a lot about that. We have a lot of tremendous stuff coming up, but before we begin, let's kick it off with a summary. Everyone who's read Christine previously, let's knock the dust off and dive in. It's 1978 in the town of Libertyville, Pennsylvania, where two teenage friends, Dennis and Arnie, are enjoying the last of summer before their senior year begins. Arnie is the less popular of the two and struggling socially until he sets his eyes on a deserted old car. Arnie purchases the busted and rusted 1958 Plymouth Fury named Christine for $250 from a cantankerous and crass old man named Roland D. LeBay. Shortly after the sale, the school year begins, LeBay dies, and Arnie's life starts to change for the better as repairs on the car continue. When Arnie is victim to aggressive schoolyard bullying, the car and Arnie are caught up in all things violent and illegal, and the history of Christine's owner comes to light. Dennis unearths the truth on the evil of LeBay and how Christine may be a living, breathing, sentient extension of his undead malevolence, hell-bent on revenge. Oh my goodness, so much fun stuff ahead, everybody. Stick around with me. We have a jam-packed episode. Let's start the show.
Hello loves, welcome to the heroes, villains, and honorable mention section of Christine. I know this is a little different, this is not my usual modus operandi. Typically in my novel analyses, I always like to examine how King built the house. I really love taking a look at the blueprints, the unique elements, the things that are really special that grabbed me, and we're gonna get there, we will. But last minute, we had a switcheroo. The magic sort of moved me in a different direction, and I realized that Christine is one of these pop culture icon films as well as novels, and this one is definitely not underrated. I know that she is one of the mega king hits of the early 80s. However, I don't know if Christine is mentioned as often as Carrie, Cujo, The Stand. I always think Christine's in the back a little bit. That's just me. But anyway, Christine is over 30 years old, and I wanted to refresh everybody's memory by talking about the characters of this book and hopefully jogging some of our memories on what this story is really all about and some of the folks that make this novel kind of great. This is, as many King novels are, a huge character piece. We have some really interesting dynamic players in this, guys. Ones that I'm still kind of thinking about because there's some mysterious layers there. So I want to start off by diving headfirst into our characters of Christine, and hopefully this section will jog your memory a little bit. I forgot to mention in the intro, I do my best to navigate around spoilers, as you guys know, but I may or may not just reveal more than you would like if you have never read Christine before or watched the film, so tread carefully, don't say I didn't warn you. Let's get to it, everybody. Okay, our first character that is definitely a hero and a villain is Mr. Arnold Cunningham, also known as Arnie Cunningham. This individual is a sweet, meek and mild outcast. He is our nerd archetype, or our sadly, our loser slash our beta male. Arnie is an intelligent individual, but he is socially struggling as King has given him a very terrible case of facial acne. It's real bad, and unfortunately, Arnie is bullied quite a bit. He is mercilessly picked on and taunted by schoolyard bullies, and he's just kind of had a rough go, seemingly for all of high school. So as they're entering into their senior year, it doesn't seem as though any of that has let up. So Arnie really sort of embraces this outcast mentality, and one of the most sort of endearing moments in the novel for me is when he sets his eyes on this rust bucket called Christine, just sort of rotting away in Roland LeBay's yard. He buys her, and his friend's like, why are you doing this? And he says, well, I find something as unattractive as me or as ugly as me. I have the ability to fix it up. And there's just a lot of heart-wrenching power behind that. I'll definitely find the direct quote where Arnie sort of tells this to our next character, the very important and very curious Dennis Gilder. Alright guys, so Dennis is the exact opposite of Arnie, whereas Arnie is on the socially struggling, really low end of the high school hierarchy, Mr. Dennis is at the top. 
Dennis is our jock archetype. He's not a dumb jock. He is intelligent, but he is winning at all things high school, guys. He is on the football team. He has a vast array of ladies in his life. He's very nonchalant about them. To Dennis, they're very much like the city bus. One will arrive every 37 minutes. He's just really nonchalant about women and being attractive, being socially accepted, being talented. He has got a lot going for him. What we learn as the reader is that Arnie and Dennis have been friends since childhood, a very long time. I also think they may have lived very close to each other. Judging by the small town America story that King is painting, I'm assuming that's the case. More on that later. But what's very, very interesting about this friendship, guys, is typically with high school friendships, especially between men, if they're not in the same social circle or in the same social standing, they kind of split like oil and water. Usually if one gets popular and the other doesn't get popular, or in Arnie's case is like the made fun of outcast, typically Dennis would want nothing to do with Arnie and he would really forget and try to avoid ever being seen with him. That is typically what happens. It is sad but true. But what's interesting is King sort of gives Dennis a real tender heart towards his friend Arnie, and they hang out quite a bit, almost all the time. And unfortunately, Arnie is the recipient of a lot of schoolyard bullying, a lot of taunting, a lot of aggressive sessions of being picked on. It's really upsetting. And Dennis is right there to swoop in and help and protect him. And that part I really love. I mean, who doesn't love that? That's always great. But what's also very interesting about Dennis happens a little bit later in our story when it comes to women. As the novel progresses and Arnie gets a little bit of luck via Christine, more on that in a bit, he ends up spending some romantic time with the very attractive, beautiful new girl in school, Lee Cabot. More on her in just a skosh. The thing is, Dennis 1000% covets, in all caps, that is the exact word, the most applicable word for what he does, he covets Arnie's gal. He absolutely has his sights on her, and in some of the internal thoughts of Dennis, we realize that when it comes to wanting to steal Arnie's girl, I don't think he feels any remorse for that desire. He knows his friend is not as attractive as he is, is not as socially gifted and popular as he, and there is not a lot of self-chastising for, oh, no, I can't do that. That would be wrong. That's Arnie's girlfriend. I shouldn't do that. There's none of that, folks. Dennis feels I'm the hot guy. She's a hot girl. She shouldn't be with Arnie. She should be with me. So what's interesting is we do have a lot of kindness and friendship between the two of them, but when it comes to women, Dennis doesn't give a hell about his friend's feelings. Very interesting. So we do have some multi-layered, complex, psychological stuff going on here. It's one of those things where I ask myself, is Dennis, the popular hot guy winning at everything in high school, is he friends with Arnie? out of pity? Most likely. Or is it the fact that Dennis is most likely 
racked by his own insecurity and feelings of ineptitude, and so he needs to be with somebody significantly more unattractive than he is to make him feel better and bigger and more capable. There is that. I'm not a psych major, but if you guys are, let me know what you think. This is a very fascinating relationship. And I know that a lot of us might not have given this a thorough glance, but if you plan on rereading or if you've recently reread Christine, let's talk about this, guys, because I'm really, really curious about what is going on between this friendship between Dennis and Arnie. A part of me thinks it's harmless and it's just a very touching bond that has survived into high school where Dennis got really lucky and didn't have the sort of social potholes that Arnie does and he's able to stick up for his friend because he does love him and he does care about him. But when it comes to Arnie getting a super attractive girlfriend, well, that's just not gonna fly. Uh, no, 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 no. Not on Dennis's watch. He will swoop in and steal it for himself. There's some really intriguing internal monologue that Dennis has about some stuff, guys. So I could go on and on. I will talk more about Dennis and Arnie coming up, but our next set of characters is a couple, and it is Michael and Regina Cunningham. These are Arnie's parents. So what's really interesting about these guys is King makes them incredibly good parents in terms of being protective to the point of smothering. These are good, good people. I would bet money that even though he doesn't say it in black and white, King has made them Democrats. They are very involved in social causes, very passionate about helping all sorts of marginalized groups. The Cunninghams are there to help, to make a big scene. They are very vocal and they want nothing more than their only son. I do not think the Cunninghams have any other children. They want nothing more than Arnie to just live in a sheltered little bubble. They do not want him to have a car. They want him to go to college. They want him to be on the chess team. It's all what they want. The Cunninghams are the definitions of helicopter parents. They are just hovering above Arnie the whole time, not letting him breathe, not letting him think for himself. That is not allowed. So when Arnie buys Christine and wants to store the car in the driveway, they flip out. Absolutely not. How could you do this, Arnie? This is so unwise, so dangerous. How can you afford this? Blah, 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 blah. There is zero support from the Cunninghams in regards to Arnie's indulgent purchase. And what this starts is a huge domino effect of rebellion. Granted, there's already some sinister stuff cooking at the time that Christine has purchased, more on that later, but the Cunninghams are well-meaning people. They have a lot of love. They really love Arnie, and it does come through the narrative at various times once they calm down. There's a lot of love for their son, but they are so afraid and worried and overly concerned that he will mortgage his future with his selfish decisions of buying a car. There are so many more terrible things they should be focusing on. I mean, this is 1978. If Arnie came in the house reeking of ganja, then they could freak out and have a talk. 
None of that happens. He just bought a rusty old car from the 50s, and they absolutely think that he's coming home three sheets to the wind, which is not the case at all. So it's interesting. It's an interesting relationship. At the start of my reading journey with Christine, I was a little concerned. We have several whole chapters featuring the Cunninghams, and I was like, what the hell's going on, Steve? Like, I don't care about these annoying parents. Why are we, why are we with these people? I don't get it. Let's hit the gas. Literally, Christine, take us out of here. Let's get out of here, Steve. I don't care about these parents and this parental smothering child relationship. But, of course, King utilizes the rules of fiction, which is use it or lose it. You either use what you've input into the story or you chop it and he uses it. Michael and Regina Cunningham are absolutely essential in the last half of the book and it definitely makes the ending quite compelling and tragic. So I understand the Cunninghams' involvement and why there are so many chapters and so many awkward conversations and uncomfortable moments. King really utilizes them all quite well at the end. More on that later. Our fourth character is an honorable mention, not necessarily a hero, maybe a little bit heroic as time will tell, but the fourth is Lee Cabot. So Lee Cabot, as I kind of mentioned earlier, she is our foxy fox. She is our beautiful damsel who is brand new to Libertyville High School. She is all things lovely with raw honey blonde hair and everybody is just smitten kitten for Lee. But Lee is really attracted to Arnie and so I believe she is Arnie's first girlfriend. Things seem to be going quite well. They have a lot of park sessions, if you guys remember what those are in the 50s or even now. I mean, people still park. I think it's mostly high schoolers though, right? Like, there's no place for them to go, so they go make out in cars. Also, for my Aussies out there, it's Pash, right? They're having a Pash. Anyway, uh, for anyone who's not from Australia, a Pash means a passionate kiss. Back on track. So Arnie and Lee have a couple makeout sessions, but Lee is an intelligent lady and is connecting with her intuition and she realizes that she feels very uncomfortable inside the car. Inside that 1958 Plymouth Fury, she feels very uneasy. She wants to get out. She doesn't like spending time in there, and she starts to say these bizarre things like, I don't like making out in the car. I don't like you touching me in the car. I never, ever, ever want to go all the way with you in this car. Like, this is not okay. I don't like this car. Of course, Arnie is completely perplexed by this. He thinks she's nuts, and that's when we, as the reader, start to connect that maybe Lee isn't crazy at all, and maybe there is something there. Maybe this bad smell that Lee is talking about, this rotten, terrible odor inside the car, isn't just her imagination. But what's interesting about Lee is she dates Arnie and then she dates Dennis. So that whole coveting thing that Dennis did earlier in the novel, it actually pays off because Lee finds some comfort in Dennis, Arnie's best friend. It's definitely a little love triangle-y. And King, of course, uses it to really heighten the drama, especially when Arnie finds out. It's real good. So Lee Cabot, she is our love interest. She is our damsel. 
She is very brave throughout this story because girlfriend goes through some stuff in regards to Christine and I will talk more about the actress who plays her in the film. I thought she did a really good job, more on that later. But our fourth character, our honorable mention, is Lee Cabot. Number five, ooh, we got one of our first villains. I want to mention this guy because my last episode was taking a look at Netflix's Mr. Harrigan's phone. Oh, stupendous. I loved it so much. If you haven't watched it, please do, and then please listen to my coverage on the film. But inside Mr. Harrigan's phone, there is a villain named Kenny Yanko, or Kenny Yankovich, I think is his full name. Anyway, He's a terrible bully that completely taunts my sweet baby angel, Craig, of which I'm definitely not okay with, but I mention Kenny because the villain I'm about to mention reminds me a great deal, and that is Buddy Repperton. Oh my goodness, guys, this guy's rotten. Okay, so Buddy Repperton is a terrible, terrible villain. He's completely irredeemable in all ways. We don't know much about his background. It's assumed that he comes from a broken home, but unlike Kenny Yanko and a lot of King's villains, we do not get a glimpse into Buddy Repperton's life, at least that I remember. The only thing we know about Buddy is he just wreaks havoc everywhere he is. Buddy Repperton pulls a knife on Arnie after some merciless taunting, and that knife is what gets him expelled from Libertyville High School. In his revenge, Buddy goes after Arnie's prized possession, which is his car. Christine is being parked at an airport lot, and he and his fellow goons, you know, these villains never travel alone, they absolutely destroy Christine. They vandalize her in all the ways that you could destroy a car, and it's actually quite heart-wrenching. It's really terrible. I know it's supposed to be a shocking moment in the book, but it's actually one that made me very sad. Buddy Repperton, he's trash. He's just a trash bag, guys. There's nothing redeemable about him. So he is somebody who I'm very excited exits the novel the way he does. It was absolutely suspenseful, cinematic, bloody. It was great. Buddy Repperton, what a jerk. I think the world's better without him. So he is an irredeemable villain, but cannot touch our next villain, ladies and gentlemen. No! Whoa! This guy is villain of all villains, villain in all caps. Hold the phone, everybody. Roland D. LeBay. Cheese and rice. Whoa! Okay, guys, this is, this is our big cheese. Roland D. LeBay is absolutely irredeemably evil, okay? Roland D. LeBay was a very troubled youth who had an explosive temper, and in the latter half of the novel, when Dennis is doing a little bit of detective work, he is interviewing Roland's brother, George. George is alive, Roland is dead, and George tells Dennis that his brother was called from his mother a changeling. This is huge, guys. For all of my fairy-believing listeners out there, it is 
myth and legend that if you had a baby who was incredibly fussy or misbehaving, there was a chance, it was highly likely, that the fairies pulled a real cruel prank and switched your good baby with an evil wild forest child, a changeling. You either pissed off the fairies and they were cursing you by stealing your good baby and giving you a crappy baby, or you just have rotten luck and they really liked your baby and decided to switch out their evil monster baby with your good baby. One of those two tales, I'm sure, colors some of the folklore we have regarding changelings. But yeah, fairy children, it sounds nice, but it is not. If somebody is a fairy child, it means they are bad, rotten, evil, no good, bad luck for you. You have to raise a little monster. And Roland's brother, George, tells Dennis, yeah, that's what my brother was. He was freaking evil from start to finish, and he killed our neighbors. He burned their house down. He killed people, and we find out that death has really followed Roland around, meaning the mysterious deaths associated with Roland's past, the death of his wife, the death of his daughter, all inside the cabin of Christine, coincidence or not, may or may not have been accidental. So what George's brother is highlighting to Dennis is that Roland was as bad as they could get. And the only thing he didn't hate, he hated the world, he hated everyone and everything. He was pissed off, angry, terrible, malicious, but the one thing he loved was that car. Roland is, of course, everybody, the evil entity that possesses our sweet Arnie. Arnie is the perfect vessel for a possession. He is vulnerable, he is lost, he is angry, he is searching, and he gets gobbled up by the spirit of LeBay, who starts to morph him physically, emotionally, mentally, all the ways. Suddenly, Arnie starts to dress like a greaser. It's 1978, guys. The style is long hair, and Arnie's here with his slicked back short style 50s tunes on the radio he's listening to elvis and richie valens and the big bopper he is playing all of those doo-wop tunes wearing a back brace saying some very strange vocabulary that has never been uttered from him before he is playing fast and loose all of a sudden he is brazen and rude and crass he has been completely possessed by Roland LeBay. And this guy is, ooh, cold and monstrous, guys. Completely irredeemable and a relentless force of terror. Super duper intense. He is our villain. Whoa. And then, of course, to conclude, to take us out, we do have one more extension, one more villain, and that's Christine. What's interesting is the name Christine, Christopher or Christine, have Christ, Christ meaning Christos from the Greek, referencing the big JC. So I love it. 
Christine, Christopher, anything with the prefix of Christos, that's what it's for, is to create a name connected to Christ. And so that's very cheeky, Steve. You take a name that's very holy and make it very sacrilegious by attributing it to a devil car. Christine is Roland's favorite possession. Now, I must say Roland LeBay because Roland DeShane is our love, right? I love Roland DeShane. Roland LeBay, not so much, but Christine is his chariot, right? She is a very unique piece of machinery. This gal is my favorite color, bright cherry red, very, very pretty, red and white with the big fins on the end. I don't know much about Plymouth. I don't know much about that era of cars, to be honest, but I did really enjoy the look of her, and it reminds me a little bit of our From a Buick 8, our 1954 Buick Roadmaster. That one was really beautiful and really cool, but I think Christine is very attractive as well back on track. So some of the characteristics of Christine that we might have forgotten or we might be encountering for the first time, this gal, her odometer runs backwards. And this is such a cool thing, guys. Her mileage is, of course, very high when Arnie first gets his hands on her, but as she's driving, the miles tick backwards, almost like she's going back in time. The craziest, coolest thing about Christine is she regenerates any kind of damage that this car acquires is erased and undone very quickly. She is destroyed multiple times. She is wrecked and ruined and trashed and broken and busted and girlfriend comes back. She is resilient. This car, because it is connected to the undead, regenerates. She pops out all her dents, all the cracks in the windshield go away, the tires inflate. I thought the film did an amazing job with this. It was totally cinematic, super fun. But what's also very interesting about Christine is even though she's real sparkly and shiny on the outside, she is very much a gilded frame. I think it was Mark Twain who once called America back in the late 19th century a gilded frame meaning it is gold up front, but underneath the paint, it is rotted wood. That's what Christine is. She's real shiny, but inside, underneath everything, there's a terrible, rotten smell of death. There is a dangerous, sinister current vibrating within her. She is revenge and malice and hate and terror. If she wants you dead, you're gonna die. If she doesn't like you, you should be on your toes. Also, the dead seem to manifest and show themselves inside the cabin. So if you are driving in Christine, you might see a face or two that is not alive. You're gonna get a front row seat to a death show. Super terrifying, everybody. One of my favorite chapters is toward the latter half of the novel. I think it's called New Year's or New Year's Eve. I'm going to read a good chunk of it in our next section because it's tremendous. But oh, we, we get some spooky stuff with this red and white lady, let me tell you. But lastly, regarding Christine, she's 
a lady about the town all on her own. She does not need anybody behind the wheel to make her own choices. She is completely sentient, guys. She is a car that has been anthropomorphized from Roland LeBay as a female, so we can sort of give her that pronoun, but she drives all over by herself seeking revenge for Roland LeBay. He is her, she is him, they are one. They are a cursed duo wreaking havoc throughout the town of Libertyville. So she is our villain with 20 exclamation marks behind it. Most definitely is she a villain. Oh my gosh. And what a cool villain she is. I think the film definitely made her larger than life in pop culture, but this novel really makes haunted objects something to talk about everybody. So to recap our characters, we have our spotlight archetypal outcast, Arnie Cunningham. Right next to him is our archetypal handsome jock, Dennis Gilder. Next, we have Michael and Regina Cunningham, the helicopter do-gooder parents of Arnie. Too little too late for them to change their ways, more on that later. Number four, we have our too hot to trot league habit. She is our high school beauty. She's a little bit heroic, but we're gonna give her an honorable mention. Next, we have our first villain to kick off this horror show, Buddy Repperton. Huge jerk, not a fan. Number six, Roland D. LeBay, the infamous evil, Ugh. the undying rage machine that is Roland D. LeBay, everybody. And number seven, Miss Christine. She is the 1958 Plymouth Fury, all red and white, ready to wreak some havoc and kill some people. <laughs> kill some people on behalf of her owner. So that's all I got for you guys. Hopefully some of these character names, some of these plot points and moments have jogged your memory a little bit and you're ready to go into the next section with me. So to quote the very unsettling Mr. LeBay, don't be a shitter, I better see you in the next section. Okay, Christine fans, let us segue into the unique elements found within the novel, as well as some of its strengths. So I want to kick us off with our first category that I'm calling Vintage Small Town Americana. One of the elements that I noticed right away in Christine is how there is such a sense of small town America in this story. 
And granted, we all know that Steve is a quintessential American writer. Absolutely, 100%. His Americanness is found really in every sentence, and it's pretty great. But there is something wonderfully vintage when you're reading Christine in 2022. The motif that Steve is using. I mean, at the time, it wasn't vintage, but it is now. And it's really delightful to observe in this modern day. So our story takes place in the small Pennsylvania town of Libertyville. It's 1978. 1976, of course, was America's bicentennial, super huge national holiday. My own parents were in high school and teenagers at that time. 1977, the first Star Wars film. But 1978 is where we lay our scene in Shakespeare terms. And also, I must highlight that we are once again in Pennsylvania. It's assumed that if we head west somewhere, we're going to reach Troop D in the rural outskirts of Pennsylvania. That, of course, is the setting for From a Buick 8. So we have two paranormal car tales from Steve in the same state. Don't know what that's about, but I really, really like it. When we look at Christine from this modern day lens, we're in a small town, two American teenagers, best friends. They both have seemingly kind and well-adjusted families. King gives us a lot of screen time with Arnie's parents, Michael and Regina, and then we also get some time with Dennis's family. He has a mom, a dad, a little sister, Ellie. They're all really charming and sweet and cookie cutter. We're also in the middle of summer where both boys are on the cusp of growth and change. The whole thing is very American TV show. And I don't know if Steve intended that. I mean, I don't think he did at all. It just sort of, this was what he brought to life at that time. But what's also really interesting as we go further into the narrative is how it grows reflects that nostalgia for 1950s America. We, of course, see this a lot in King stories, especially It, which takes place in 1958 Derry. King was also a 11-year-old boy in 1958, so this is his youth and childhood he is writing about. America in the 50s, as you guys know, there was just the boom of everything. Baby boom, auto boom, commercialism, consumerism, television, the works. But for the teenagers of the 50s, it was all about rock and roll music and cars and rebellion, smoking, sexual awakenings, all that good stuff. Of course, it is the same for teenagers in 1978, but it's a little different, guys. Also, I think there's a lot more reefer involved. <laughs> Everyone was smoking the devil's lettuce rather than just tobacco. A lot more Mary Jane, different cultural movements from Women's Live, all that good stuff. Plus, we have to look at all the cults and tragedy from the late 60s, early 70s, and of course, Vietnam. I think America lost all of its innocence from that war. I mean, after Vietnam, forget it, because as we know, when those boys came back, it was very difficult for them, and in theory, they never came back. None of them did. 
but that's a larger, more tragic story, and King explores Vietnam and post-Vietnam really beautifully in the novella collection, or rather, the story collection, as I've iterated previously. Hearts in Atlantis, give that one a gander if you haven't. So, so good. But we are in post-Vietnam America, very small town. King has presented it like a television show, especially considering the character archetypes we mentioned earlier of Dennis as our handsome jock and Arnie, our tortured outcast loser, which is very sad but true. So when you read this story in 2022, there is such a vintage America motif exploring the late 70s as well as the nostalgia of the 50s. We really get a gander of what it was like to be a piece of trash greaser Roland LeBay with your 58 Plymouth as your only love, just wreaking havoc and playing chicken and joyriding all over the town, being rebel without a cause. So lots of American nostalgia in this story, especially a snapshot of American teenagers who get stuck in a super big pickle. Alright guys, now let's roll up our sleeves and get up into straight evil. <laughs> our number two category, demonic possession and cursed objects. Alright, dark and spooky. One of the areas I really love about the novel Christine, and I was very surprised to have encountered it as the story progressed, is that King really grabs the reader by the necktie and pulls us into some very terrifying elements that are quite mature and no laughing matter. One of them being haunted cursed objects. I really want to spend some time on this one, guys, because I think when I chat with folks who are non-King readers, a lot of them know the film Christine, and they kind of like chuckle and shake their heads because it's a little silly. It's a little kooky, a cursed car, a haunted car. But what's sad is I think the movie made the subject of Christine a little laughable, whereas the novel doesn't do that at all, guys. Holy crap, no it does not. This is a story that really highlights a very real and very creepy art of life where the physical possessions someone leaves behind when they die may or may not have the sinister attached to them. So exploring these objects, it's just a part of life in general. Some people feel immense comfort when a loved one dies and they hang on to their clothes for a while or gadgets, knickknacks. The essence of the person is often attributed to these items and it brings comfort. Sadly, it works in the same way for the opposite direction. On the other end of the spectrum, those who have harmed other people, or people who die that we don't necessarily care for, or who we are afraid of, objects they had during their living years are believed to carry that same soul saturation, but it goes further, guys. The objects themselves are filled with the spirit or soul of the horrible person attached to it. And it is assumed that these animate or inanimate objects can become haunted slash cursed vessels of evil, that they themselves have evil intent. Oh, it's so, so true. And we see this everywhere throughout world cultures, guys. This is a thing. Haunted objects 
cursed objects. We have it in films, TV, literature. It's one of the reasons why I love haunted houses, and that's one of the reasons why we believe in them so much. The laces, the clothes, the favorite items, there is spiritual attachment. Also dolls, guys. Dolls are everywhere. Toys are huge. Haunted or possessed dolls. We've got Chucky. We have Annabelle. We even have animals. As you guys know, I haven't yet read Cujo, but I think Cujo, from my chattings with other constant readers, it sounds like Frank Dodd, if we remember the serial killer from the Dead Zone. I think he might be in Cujo, but I don't know for sure. I'm not supposed to know yet. If you jump back earlier in the year to our Skeleton Crew coverage, I think we touched on the short story The Monkey a little bit. That is a very haunted object, this little toy monkey slapping some symbols together and it turns up in unexpected places despite being hidden, destroyed, buried, creepy, creepy, creepy. The monkey is a wonderful example of a haunted object story. But overall, what's fascinating is the notion that haunted objects are absolutely everywhere in gothic literature, in horror stories, and Christine might be the coolest example to absolutely start a whole new avenue in pop culture, in horror lit. She is a cursed car, a haunted car, and I am unaware of a previous locomotive to have it, but it makes so much sense when we look at the anthropological likelihood that the spirit of someone can translate to a physical object. My next topic to build upon this is, of course, let's examine soul possession by an evil entity or let's just call it demon possession. So unlike the film, which we're going to talk more about later, where basically Christine is kind of born bad, (laughs) she's on the conveyor belt and immediately starts causing trouble. She just chooses to be a bad girl. We don't really learn about any kind of cursed or haunted attributes with the movie. But overall, guys, as I mentioned earlier, this story is about possession. Arnie is a vulnerable, depleted young man. He is ripe for possession by the spirit of an evil, wrathful, vengeful murderer named Roland LeBay. And that is what this story is about, despite what pop culture kind of made it out to be. But when I was reading the novel, and I'm getting to know these young men, the town of Libertyville, their families, and then I started to realize the direction we were headed was one about possession. I put two and two together, that Roland LeBay is the driving force behind Christine. And when I was sussing that out, I couldn't shake two contemporary examples to kind of heighten this a little bit. So stay with me. I know I might lose a couple of you, but stay with me. So the first example I want to talk about is how I feel Christine is a horcrux. If you're a fan of Harry Potter, you know what a horcrux is. I know it's a YA story and a little juvenile for our examination, but hear me out, it totally works. 
For all of the Harry Potter enthusiasts out there, the word Horcrux should ring a bell, whether you read the series yourself or you're a fan and read them to your children, nieces, nephews, despite the fact that this is a story for children. There's a really sinister and rather adult, if you think about it, villain by the name of Voldemort. So Voldemort has all the characteristics of an epically evil, irredeemable villain. He is incredibly powerful, troubled childhood, lots of hatred, intolerance, sociopathic, psychopathic tendencies, zero empathy, and add murder on top of that. Really quick, sorry for the spoilers, in order to live forever, the villain of Voldemort splits his soul into seven inanimate objects. According to author J.K. Rowling, in her lore and mythology, the soul can be split specifically via murder. So taking life fragments the soul and it can then be incubated into another entity and thus allow a part of that evil individual to live forever. A part of them lives on as long as these objects endure. So if you think about it, guys, really gel and jive with me. Christine is a horcrux. She is a vessel for LeBay's soul. Probably one of the first. Actually, she wasn't the first. My next example was the first, and hopefully I'll win back a few of you. My second example is the one ring. So for those of you who aren't Harry Potter fans, hopefully the same message can be translated with this additional comparison from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Yes, it seems that Rowling's Voldemort concept is not a new thing, as the evil Lord Sauron, the center villain of the entire trilogy, he did the exact same thing with splitting his soul with the One Ring. To augment my hypothesis, let me read a quote from Lord of the Rings. This is from the ageless, beautiful elven queen Galadriel that will indicate that really, really powerful evil villains have a way of storing portions of their evil into objects. She says, It began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners, and craftsmen in the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were given to the race of men who, above all else, desire power. But there were, all of them, deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Small tangent, I'm a huge Loader fan, I could not resist, but yes, there you go folks, cursed objects, we have the seven horcruxes of Harry Potter, the one ring of Sauron, and here, King gives us the overflowing oil drum that is Roland LeBay's murderous, hateful, raging soul soaked into every inch of a certain 1958 Plymouth Fury. It's so cool, guys. It's fascinating. 
villains throughout our literature have been doing this for a while. They harvest whatever's left in order to live forever and somehow attribute it to an object. Really, really cool concept. It seems like King was right on the money with some incredibly popular villain moves that were taking place in fiction. Kind of interesting to think about, so chew on that for a while and let me know what your thoughts are. So our last category in our strengths portion is narration and structure. Before we start on this one, I have to talk about The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald for just a couple minutes, I promise. I'll explain why, but really, really quick. As you guys know, and as you have hopefully all read, The Great Gatsby is a 1925 novel set in the jazz age of New York City, where we have the tale of a man called Jay Gatsby who gets involved in shady dealings to acquire wealth and power in order to impress and win over his one true love, Daisy Buchanan. It is a tragic tale about the American dream, status, wealth, facades, and it is, in my humble English major opinion, the great American novel. However, like most English majors, I'm torn between Harper Lee's 1960 masterpiece To Kill a Mockingbird. And I believe every week in America at some bar, you're going to find many English majors debating each other on these two novels over drinks. I promise, promise, that's what you're going to find. You will see a cluster of academics with glasses of wine and whiskey neat for the boys, and we go back and forth. Is it Gatsby? Is it Mockingbird? Truth be told, it's both, but I digress. I bring up Gatsby because its narration reminds me of what King is doing with the story of Christine, specifically with the 17-year-old character of Dennis Gilder. So when we start this novel, guys, when you open up that first page, you meet Dennis. Dennis is our first-person narrator, and for the first 20 chapters of the novel, Dennis is telling the story of his ugly duckling friend named Arnie Cunningham, much like the way Nick Carraway did for his friend Jay Gatsby. Nick Carraway is, of course, reflecting on the past, reflecting on the time. He's writing from a seemingly much more dismal and less bright future, and we kind of get an inclination based on the foreshadowing and ominous hints here and there that Dennis also has a sad story to tell. So if you guys plan on rereading Christine for the chills and thrills, by all means, definitely do that. But take a look at this narrative structure. It's awesome. Dennis is totally our Nick Carraway. He's like, yeah, I'm Dennis. I'm a star. But let me tell you about my sad friend, Arnie. That's exactly what Nick Carraway does in Gatsby. He's like, I'm Nick. I just moved to the city. And let me tell you the tale of Gatsby, my friend who is the great Gatsby, but not for reasons you think. As we touched on in our first section, Dennis is somewhat of a star, right? He is intelligent, socially accepted, nobody bullies Dennis. He has a pleasant family life, and right away he informs the reader that Arnie is the down-on-his-luck, unfortunate soul. And so, for the first 20 chapters, we're seeing the town and the high school of Libertyville, Pennsylvania from his eyes. 
we learn how Arnie gets his hands on the old clunker named Christine, but mysteriously, and this is where my ears and eyes perked up a little bit, around chapter 20, Dennis is seriously injured on the football field and he's in the hospital for a good chunk of time. He completely drops out of view and he doesn't come back as our narrator until the last third of the book. And I was like, whoa, what is King doing here? So he's released from the hospital after Thanksgiving and there's actually a really touching scene where Arnie visits him in the hospital and brings him like sandwiches and snacks and they talk. And this is kind of where Dennis gets a good look at the changes that have been happening to his friend Arnie, but more on that later. But he's in the hospital until after the holiday. And by the time we get to Christmas and New Year's, Dennis, as our narrator, tells the reader that Arnie's life is completely unrecognizable, as well as Dennis's. So at first I was very curious as to why King had Dennis drop off as the narrator for such a long period of time. I was a little worried, guys, because for the first half of the book, it's just life through Dennis's eyes. And it's really well done, even though Dennis is our star. And right away, we kind of get a bad vibe when he starts to covet Lee right away. Because one of the cool parts, even though it all goes downhill, as you guys know, when Arnie starts working on Christine, or rather when Christine starts to change and beautify and fix herself slowly but surely, Arnie's skin starts to clear up, he starts to have a bit more confidence, he's not as meek and mild because the spirit of LaBay is coming through, but before it all goes haywire, he is attractive to the opposite sex for a hot minute there, and Lee Cabot has a crush on Arnie and they start going together. So of course, Dennis, is, Dennis covets that right away, wants it for himself. Then Dennis is injured and we have Arnie narrating the story a little bit, or rather this kind of third person omniscient mixed with Arnie for the entire second half. And then in the last half, when things are real bad, Dennis returns. I was wary at first when Dennis went away as our narrator. I was like, wait, wait a minute, what are you doing? Stop, 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 come back. But this was actually very smart, guys. This was really cool. I really enjoyed that Dennis falls out of frame and when he comes back, there's such a frightening amount to sift through that it really, really works. And it definitely echoes Great Gatsby for me, guys. Of course, with some slight differences. If Nick Carraway was the rich, successful one and Gatsby was the outcast loser, then we'd kind of be on the same page. But actually, if I think about it, that's really how the story of Great Gatsby goes down. <laughs> if you guys remember Fitzgerald's tale, but I'm going too far on a tangent with that one. Overall, the narration and the narrative structure, what King does with telling this story incredibly smart. We have our handsome Dennis, our teenage King star narrating the first half highlighting what a sad sack Arnie is and how he got his hands on Christine, falls out of frame. Then the reader beholds the terrible and freakish changes that this car really is all about, that this car has brought forth into Arnie's life. Suddenly he's a bootlegger for Will Darnell. He is caught up in crime. He is consumed with 
revenge and bloodlust and it just really really escalates and then in the last half is when we get this poignant reflection and horrifying reaction from Dennis who unravels the mystery cracks the code and realizes his poor friend is lost and everybody is in a lot of danger really smart narrative decisions here guys I was very very pleased All right, to recap the strengths and unique elements of this novel, we first have vintage small town Americana. I really love that. It is so evident when you read it in modern day. Number two, demonic possession and cursed objects with subcategories of Christine is a horcrux and the one ring. And then lastly, we have narration and structure. So good, guys. Okay, let us end this section with a chunk from my favorite chapter out of the entire novel. Oh my god, guys, this is the most amazing chapter. Truly, start to finish. It is tense, beautifully written, the prose is incredible, the uncomfortable, awkward shift between Dennis and the now LeBay-possessed Arnie is super thick. It is absolutely brilliant and sold the book for me. This section I'm about to read captures the wonderful writing, the horror elements King is exploring, lots of spooky Lovecraftian imagery here, and we also have that vintage Americana vibe I spoke about earlier. This whole chapter has it all guys i cannot emphasize that enough and this section is just absolute fire just a raging bonfire of awesome so the scene i'm about to read takes place after arnie has picked up dennis in christine drove him to his house and it's just two dudes drinking beer watching tv and staying up till midnight to ring in the new year And as we head to the bottom of page 433 in the American hardcover, Arnie and Dennis have just hopped in to Christine to head home. Here we go. I don't know how to tell you about that ride home, that three-mile ride that lasted no more than 10 or 12 minutes without sounding like an escapee from a lunatic asylum. There is no way to be objective about it. Just sitting here and trying is enough to make me feel cold and hot at the same time feverish and ill. There is no way to separate what was real and what my mind might have manufactured. No dividing line between objective and subjective, between the truth and horrified hallucination. But it wasn't drunkenness. If I can assure you of nothing else, I can assure you of that. Any mild high I retained from the beer evaporated immediately. What followed was a cold, sober tour of the country of the damned. We went back in time, for one thing. For a while, Arnie wasn't driving at all. It was LeBay, rotting and stinking of the grave, half-skeleton and half-rotting spongy flesh, greenly corroded buttons. Maggots squirmed their sluggish way up from his collar. I could hear a low buzzing sound and thought at first it was a short circuit in one of the dashboard lights. It was only later that I began to think it might have been the sound of flies hatching in his flesh. Of course, it was winter time, but... At times, there seemed to be other people in the car with us. Once I glanced up into the rearview mirror and saw a wax dummy of a woman staring at me with the bright and sparkling eyes of a stuffed trophy. 
Her hair was done in a 50s page boy style, her cheeks appeared to have been wildly rouged, and I remember that carbon monoxide poisoning was supposed to give the illusion of life in high color. Later I glanced into the mirror again and seemed to see a little girl back there, her face blackened with strangulation, her eyes popping like those of some cruelly squeezed stuffed animal. I shut my eyes tight and when I opened them it was Buddy Repperton and Richie Trelawney in the rearview mirror. Crusted blood had dried on Buddy's mouth, chin, neck, and shirt. Richie was a roasted hulk, but his eyes were alive and aware. Slowly, Buddy extended his arm. He was holding a bottle of Texas Driver in one blackened hand. I closed my eyes once more, and after that I didn't look into the rear view anymore. I remember rock and roll on the radio. Dion and the Belmonts, Ernie K. Doe, the Royal Teens, Bobby Rydell, Oh Bobby, oh everything's cool, we're glad you go to a swingin' school. I remember that for a while, red styrofoam dice seemed to be hanging from the rearview mirror. Then for a while were baby shoes, and then there was neither one. Most of all, I remember seizing the idea that these things, like the smell of rotting flesh and moldy upholstery, were only in my mind. That they were no more than mirages that haunt the consciousness of an opium eater. I was like someone who was badly stoned and trying to make some kind of rational conversation with a straight person. Because Arnie and I did talk. I remember that, but not what we talked about. I held up on my end, I kept my voice normal, I responded, and that 10 or 12 minutes seemed to last hours. I have told you that it is impossible to be objective about that ride. If there was a logical progression of events, it is lost to me now, blocked out. That journey through the cold black night really was like a trip on a boulevard through hell. I can't remember everything that happened, but I can remember more than I want to. We backed out of the driveway and into a mad funhouse world where all the creeps were real. We went back in time, I have said, but did we? The present day streets of Libertyville were still there, but they were like a thin overlay of film. It was as if the Libertyville of the late 1970s had been drawn on saran wrap and laid over a time that was somehow more real, and I could feel that time reaching his dead hands out towards us, trying to catch us and draw us in forever. Arnie stopped at intersections where we should have had the right of way, at others where traffic lights glowed red. He cruised Christine mildly through without even slowing. On Main Street, I saw Shipstad's Jewelry Store and the Strand Theater, both of them torn down in 1972 to make way for the new Pennsylvania Merchants Bank. The cars parked along the street, gathered here and there in clumps where New Year's Eve parties were going on, all seemed to be pre-60s or pre-1958. Long, porthole Buicks, a DeSoto firelight station wagon with a body-long blue inset that looked like a checkmark, a 57 Dodge Lancer four-door hardtop, Ford Fairlanes with their distinctive taillights, each like a big colon lying on its side, Pontiacs in which the grill had not yet been split, Ramblers, Packards, a few bullet-nosed Studebakers, and once, fantastical and new, an Edsel. Yeah, this year is going to be better, Arnie said. I glanced over at him. 
He raised his beer can to his lips, and before it got there, his face had turned to LeBay's, a rotting figure from a horror comic. The fingers that held the beer were only bones. I swear to you, they were only bones, and the pants lay nearly flat against the seat, as if there were nothing inside them except broomsticks. Is it? I said, breathing the car's foul and choking my asthma as shallowly as possible and trying not to choke. It is, LeBay said. Only now he was Arnie again, and as we paused at a stop sign, I saw a 77 Camaro go ripping past. All I ask is that you stand by me a little, Dennis. Don't let my mother drag you into this shit. Things are going to turn out. He was LeBay again, grinning fleshlessly and eternally at the idea of things turning out. I felt my brains beginning to totter. Surely I would scream soon. I dropped my eyes from that terrible half-face and saw what Lee had seen. Dashboard instruments that weren't instruments at all, but luminous and green eyes bulging out at me. At some point, the nightmare ended. We pulled up at the curb in an area of town I didn't even recognize, an area I would have sworn I had never seen before. Tracked houses stood dark everywhere, some of them three-quarters finished, some no more than frames. Halfway down the block, lit by Christine's high beams, was a sign which read, Maple Way Estates, Libertyville Realtors' sole selling agents, a good place to raise your family. Think about it. Well, here you go, Arnie said. Can you make it up the walkway yourself, man? I looked doubtfully around at this deserted, snow-covered development and then nodded. Better here, on crutches, alone, than in that terrible car. I felt a large plastic smile on my face. Sure, thanks. Negative perspiration, Arnie said. He finished his beer and LeBay tossed it into a litter bag. Another dead soldier. Yeah, I said. Happy New Year, Arnie. I fumbled for the door handle and opened it. I wondered if I could get out, if my trembling arms would support the crutches. LeBay was looking at me, grinning. Just stay on my side, Dennis, he said. You know what happens to shitters who don't. Yes, I whispered. I knew all right. I got my crutches out and heaved myself up onto them, careless of any ice that might be underneath. They held me, and once out, the world underwent a swimming, twisting change. Lights came on, but of course, they'd been there all along. My family had moved into Mapleway Estates in June of 1959, the year before I was born. We still lived here, but the area had stopped being known as Mapleway Estates by 1963 or 1964 at the latest. Out of the car, I was looking at my own house, on my own perfectly normal street, just another part of Libertyville, Pennsylvania. I looked back at Arnie, half expecting to see LeBay again, taxi driver from hell with his benighted cargo of the long dead. But it was only Arnie, wearing his high school jacket with his name sewn over the left breast. Arnie looked too pale and too alone. Arnie with a can of beer propped against his crotch. Good night, man. Good night, I said. Be careful going home. You don't want to get picked up. I won't, he said. You take care, Dennis. I will. I shut the door. My horror had changed to a deep and terrible sorrow. It was as if he had been buried. Buried alive. I watched Christine pull away from the curb and head off down the street. I watched until she turned the corner and disappeared from my sight. Then I started up the walk to the house. Holy... Oh my god, guys, wasn't that a... (laughs) Wasn't that 
Pure fire. Wasn't that just like lava flowing? I am obsessed. That is the most phenomenal chapter. It's my favorite. It has everything. Oh my god, everything. It's just electrifying. I can't get over it. And plus, New Year's is my absolute favorite holiday ever, ever, ever. It's the most incredible chapter. I hope you loved it. Stick with me. Thank you guys for hanging out thus far. This is a lengthy one because Christine is just kind of great, as we know. It's kind of amazing, kind of awesome. So I'll see you in the next section where we're going to talk about couple criticisms, couple questions, and the 1983 John Carpenter film. Thank you all so much for hanging out with me. Hopefully this joyride with Christine is going smoothly. This is our final section where I will attempt to wrap everything up in terms of my questions, my criticisms, and then we're going to talk about the 1983 film. Got a couple things I want to share and then we will send Christine off into the sunset. Okay, my first criticism in this is a soft one. All of them are very soft, meaning this is something that I fully accept and I'm okay with, but when I look at the story as a whole, these are the areas that I would have tinkered with. And the first one is too much focus on Arnie's parents. Inside the story, the first half we're really getting to know the boys and their families. King really sets up that Leave it to Beaver television show, American Slice of Life, with these young men and their parental units. There's a lot of focus on Michael and Regina because they do not support Arnie at all. They throw a huge hissy fit in regards to his purchase of Christine. We also learn that even though they are very righteous do-gooders, they don't let this kid breathe or make his own mistakes for anything. They're they're very fear-based parental unit. But there are moments that are standalone arguments with one parent or both parents. There's even one moment where Arnie's dad, Michael, drives Christine for a little bit, I think. Either he's the driver or a passenger. And he starts to warm up to it a little bit. And it's in these scenes that I, I just started to get a little irritated because I was like, why? Well, I don't care about these parents. Like, I care about Dennis and Arnie's friendship. I care about Arnie's physical transformation. I, I don't care that he... It's already been made very evident that the parents aren't supportive of Arnie. Why are we getting chapter after chapter featuring the parents? So I was a little upset by that. However, when we get to the end of the novel, spoiler alert, please pause now if you do not want the ending of Christine revealed. When we get to the end of the novel, King 
definitely wraps all of that into a bow because the entire Cunningham family dies at the hands of Christine slash Roland LeBay. Michael Cunningham is captured and seemingly given carbon monoxide poisoning from Christine. His body is sort of literally thrown around in the climactic wrecking ball scene at the end. And then our last peripheral look is from one of the detectives who visits Dennis in the hospital, letting him know that Arnie and Regina died in a tragic car crash where there was seemingly a struggle with, quote, three people in the car rather than just two, because one of the big plot points is that Christine only gets up to mischief when Arnie is out of Libertyville. More on that in a little bit. What was interesting when I thought about it at the end is King wipes out the entire family. The entire Cunningham family dies. It is very tragic. And because we're looking at the demonic in this story a little bit, we are examining evil. There's a little bit of biblical allusion to this, folks. I don't think it was King's intention. However, who are we to know? Whenever you see a family unit comprised of father, mother, and son, and no other siblings, there's a lot of biblical allusion to Jesus married Joseph. And that is often referenced as the Holy Family, La Sagrada Familia in Spanish, the Holy Family. There's actually an entire church in Barcelona devoted to this Holy Family. It is highly likely that demonic influence would choose to mock the Holy Family, mock the Trinity. This is what we see in horror films. For example, Jesus was crucified on Golgotha at 3 p.m., Therefore, the witching hour in horror films is 3 a.m. Suddenly a noise or the person will wake up at 3 a.m. That is the demonic mocking holiness. They mock the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They mock the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. So it's actually quite fitting what King did in creating a very sophisticated horror tale about possession. LeBay takes over their son, consumes his life, and tragically, they are all victims of this terrible attack. It actually works. During those chapters that are a little slow or they seem a little overly drawn out, I'm getting a little antsy because I'm used to King's really tight fiction where he just trims the fat, eliminates the time we spend with characters that aren't needed. However, because he annihilates the entire family at the end, the chapters with the parents take on a greater revenance and relevance. So in my criticisms, I guess what I would say is it would be a real 50-50 on keeping everything as is or changing the ending a little bit. Because while we do have a lot of creepy biblical allusion to the wiping out of the holy family, seemingly, I am a little sad, and this is my second criticism, that we did not have a climactic 
Arnie in person exiting the novel. We only hear that Arnie and his mother died in a car crash and it was a struggle. But I kind of wish there would have been a Shakespearean face-off, especially between Arnie and Dennis. Like, this was a friendship slash brotherhood that went real sour real quick, and I would have liked to have had Arnie present for that. I think that the ending works, especially when you think about all the spooky we just mentioned. It does work, but I am a little sad that the climax is all about Dennis and Lee. They're trying to smash the car and there's the dead body of the father. Like, there was some real dramatic moments that were lost because King decided to do a real fading out on Arnie's death. It's just casually mentioned. It's a little nonchalant. It still makes an impact, of course, when you realize the entire Cunningham family is dead. Like, it definitely is a gut punch, but we could have had a really bombastic final scene, guys. If Arnie would have been there in person, if it all would have gone down with the horror imagery and the showdown, I think we could have had some fantastic, explosive drama. So I'm a little curious why King decided to take his foot off the gas with that. We learn that Arnie's out of town and he just dies in a crash with his mother. And the end is, of course, Dennis and Lee and Christine trying to smash her to smithereens until he's finally successful enough, in theory, quote, because at the end, there's speculation that Christine might not be gone because is evil really truly gone? Unknown. So my criticisms are perhaps changing the ending a little bit to give Arnie the first person spotlight. He is, after all, our sad, ugly duckling character, our archetypal nerd who really never got to have his day. Really ever. Truly. LeBay took over shortly after and he was just a puppet to this evil spirit. And I would have liked to have hopefully had the LeBay entity leave his body it's okay that he could have still died and we could have kept the tragic ending, but like seeing his dead father, I think that would have been huge, guys. If Arnie would have laid eyes on what Christine did to his father, we could have had an epic battle, right? He could have really fought to push LeBay out. Something. We, we could have had a last stand. And I think Arnie as a character, he is a tragic character, but I think he deserved a last stand. And I'm a little sad that he didn't get any stand at all. So maybe my wishing well would be toward an alternate ending that would ramp up the drama, ramp up Arnie observing what Christine has done, seeing that his father is dead. Uh, maybe his mother would have died too, like hearing over the phone that his mother died. Something like we could have really ramped up that drama. To round out my criticisms, perhaps I would edit down those parent chapters. I respect them for what they are, but they're a little flabby where we need them to be tight, where we need the story to be moving along a little bit. As I mentioned earlier, I'm okay with it. I really enjoy the story as is with all decisions made. 
But if we're getting nitpicky, if we're splitting hairs, I would definitely make some changes on those parental chapters, as well as changing the ending just a skosh. I think we had some opportunities for some greater drama that were lost. All right, folks, the 1983 John Carpenter film. What's fascinating is that I believe Christine was published early in 1983, and by the end of 1983, there was the film. So, wow. I guess King was really white hot at that time, and they just scooped it up and started production. What I like about the movie, we always start with the positive here, is the special effects are just fantastic, right? It's very cool seeing Christine regenerate and pop out her dents, and it's really well done. The flaming car, there's some beautifully filmed shots as Carpenter is known for. I really love when Christine is on fire and driving behind Buddy Rupperton and he's running and it's just this isolated highway. It was great. So there's a couple really standout cool scenes. I am a Carpenter fan. I love the original Halloween. I love the thing. I am a fan. So I really love sort of these standout beautiful moments where the car is just so menacing and evil and really well done. The special effects are great. The casting is decent. So I really love the actor who was chosen for Dennis. He is absolutely perfect, just fresh-faced and cute and talented. I love it all. I felt who they chose for Lee, the actress Alexandra Paul, who would later skyrocket to fame on Baywatch, if you guys remember from the 90s. Of course, of course you remember. But I felt those two were perfectly cast. However, and we will now transition into the negatives, into the cons, the actor who portrayed Arnie, oh my goodness, he is supposed to be nerdy and unattractive, but in 30 years, this guy is a hipster 10, ladies and gentlemen. He's so cute. He has amazing black-rimmed glasses. He is so cute. Like, he is not unattractive, but of course, in Hollywood terms, glasses just make you hideous. <laughs> so I was appalled. I was appalled that they thought the actor portraying Arnie was unattractive and nerdy. No, he is charming and sweet and totally cute. Come on, like we needed somebody who had some facial acne, just like Arnie in the novel. The bad skin is what gives him the low confidence, is what makes him just fodder for bullies. Well, come on, like, can we actually make somebody look bad? But you can't, because it's Hollywood. They don't do that. They don't, they don't do ugly anything. So I think something was lost. Something was definitely lost with the uh, casting for Arnie because he's so cute. But he did a great job. Everyone did a great job in their role. My other casting gripe is the actor who portrayed Buddy Rupperton. <laughs> you guys, the actor who portrayed Buddy Rupperton looks like he is 35 years old. He is in no way a high schooler. Oh my goodness, it's laughable. I started laughing. I absolutely just busted up because no, there is no way ever that somebody like that is a high school student. So that did not work for me at all. So some of the casting was hit or miss. But the biggest problem I have with the film, of course, is that they distilled Christine into a special effects showcase for the car and they lost the story completely. 
This story is about possession, and they lost that. They just made it about a car who chooses to be evil. Christine is in the Detroit assembly line and starts to misbehave just because. There's no connection to Roland LeBay yet. It just, the story is lost. We don't even really get to see Arnie transforming. We don't get to see, other than he's a little more aggressive, we don't get to observe the transformation. And there's also no horror elements, guys. This is a suspense film. What King wrote is a horror story. It's a novel that is very frightening. We have a lot of mention of of dead bodies and rotting flesh and really macabre imagery. The film did not touch that at all, and there was a real lost opportunity for that. If we would have had a scene like we have in the New Year's Eve chapter with the dead bodies of LeBay's wife and child and the corpses of Buddy Rupperton and Richie Trelawney. That's huge, guys. Like, the makeup. We had so many moments where this just could have been an amazing horror film. But as is, it's a suspense movie. That's all it is. It's suspense. Nobody understands why this car is evil. But the best parts are the regeneration scenes. Those are so cool to watch. It's really exciting to see Christine kill people (laughs) all on her own. But I, I really feel the film contributed poorly to making Christine a little hokey pokey in the minds of consumers. Because if you watch the film, there are some laughable parts, right? It's silly. It's over the top. It's supposed to be. But then when you read the novel and you observe how sophisticated it is, how classically dark this is about possession, cursed objects, a tragic family annihilation, the destroying of American youth and dreams, like, whoa! We have some heavy themes in this novel, and yet the movie did not (laughs) deliver any of those at all, so I do have a couple problems with that. It is very fun to see that beautiful, shiny car driving around. It is thrilling, it is exhilarating, so that is my favorite part of the film, is just watching Christine get up to mischief. That is the best part. Everything else is a little bit of a downgrade for me. There were a couple scenes that were extremely close to the novel, which I appreciated, such as when, bless him, sweet Arnie is being attacked by Buddy Rupperton and all of his goons. That was very, very close from the book. Very, very close. So there was a lot of scenes that I really, really enjoyed. When Lee starts to choke in the car, that was pretty good. So the cinematic changes are always fun to observe. I liked the creative choices when it came to making Christine very monstrous, but the story itself is very, very lost. It's a little too Hollywood schlock and just a suspenseful special effects movie with no story. So those are my thoughts. I still appreciate it for what it is. And it's so nice to see that red car looking foxy up and down the streets. And I think that's about all I got, folks. Oh, I, oh man, I really enjoyed this book, guys. I didn't think I would because I was going into it with a, I think this might be hokey. I think this might be a cheesy story, maybe one that deserves to be in the back pile, but no, guys, this has some dark 
heavily themed subject matter within and I really enjoyed it so so good I'm really glad I read it what a perfect Halloween book thank you all so much for listening and hanging out if you haven't already shared the show with a friend please do so whenever you get a chance and if you are an audible member feel free to give the show a five star so if you don't use apple Podcasts, that's okay you can head over to audible we're actually on there which is totally fun so head over to audible and give the show a five star say something nice if you would be so so kind coming up next we are at the end of october i can't believe it time has absolutely flown I think what we're gonna do is read a Bachman. I think Bachman's Blaze is going to be our November pick, and I hope to chat with my friend Jamie Stewart about that book. So Jamie and I are gonna have a chat. I'm gonna start working on Blaze here. We have more constant reader interview fun to explore as we head into the holiday season. I'm excited and hope you all are too. Once more from the bottom of my cherry red Plymouth Fury heart, I love you all so much. Thank you for listening. Please write into the show if you haven't at underratedsk at gmail. Say hello, let me know where you're calling from, what you think of the show, and feel free to discuss any of these past episodes as I am always keen to chat king. Take care wherever you are, bundle up, and grab your copy of Blaze as that is going to be our next pick. I will talk to you all very soon. Take care and bye bye